Father in heaven, we do come to you recognizing uh, that you have been good to us, that you have blessed us, and to whom much is given, much is required. And so, Lord, as, as believers in Jesus, we seek your face today. Lord, we humble ourselves. We submit ourselves to you. And God, we ask that uh, you work in and through our government, in and through our land. God, that your sovereign will would be accomplished according to your riches and glory. And so, Lord, uh, I pray for each believer in this room uh, that, Lord, all those who are 18 over would exercise their right, privilege, and responsibility uh, to vote, uh, not only uh, in the elections ahead, but in the, all the elections that you've given us, all the opportunities. And, Lord, as we seek your heart, uh, Lord, that we would vote according to the way that the Spirit leads us. And, God, you will be glorified. So we know that you are ultimately in control and in charge, and so we trust that. But we also take the responsibilities that you have given us, uh, Lord, seriously. And we want to do all that we can to accomplish your will upon this earth, uh, Lord, in concert with your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be talking about storms. and We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, of course, uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. And as we talk about storms, you know, I grew up in a culture and an area in Louisiana where there were a lot of storms. Uh, we always, during this season, we were hearing about hurricanes that might be possibly coming through, uh, storms that would be coming, and uh, it, wasn't, it was very normal uh, for us to have our electricity go out for two, three, four, maybe even five days on a really bad storm. And uh, I, I grew up hearing all about storms. Matter of fact, I grew up hearing as a child uh, each year, uh, we would talk about the fact that one day a hurricane was going to come through and that it would completely submerge New Orleans. I mean, I heard that every year. There's a storm coming one day, and it's going to completely flood New Orleans. And, uh, of course, uh, that has occurred now, and uh, that was something that was fulfilled. I was re- wondering if it would ever really happen, uh, but in, in fact, it has happened. And uh, the truth of it is, the city of New Orleans, uh, a m- major part of it is under uh, sea level. And not only that, the city of New Orleans is sinking three feet every 100 years. Uh, So they've got some serious issues they're having to deal with. And we're going to look at a serious issue that the disciples come upon. And they're at the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And just to the north is Mount Hermon. And it's 9,200 feet above sea level, so there's 10,000 feet. And what that means is when you have uh, that, when they're in that close of a range, and you have that warm air in the lower areas and the cool air uh, in the mountains that meet each other, that uh, suddenly storms can erupt at any time. And the Sea of Galilee was uh, very famous for having uh, sudden storms. And the disciples will find themselves right in the midst of the storm. But what about our storms? Of course, there's a parallel to Tay that you will notice here, that there are storms in life and there are literal storms that we encounter. And Jesus gives us this story of the storm here, I believe, to teach us that we can trust God even in the midst of storms. How do we handle the storms of life that come our way? Now, there's some storm facts that we need to understand that will occur both weather-wise and life-wise. And what are those facts? Let me give you some. First of all, storms will come. Just count on it. Storms are going to come. We had one yesterday. Storms are going to come. And they're going to come in your life as well. And many of you could stand up and give testimony of a storm that you're in right now. Number two, storms come at inconvenient times. 
most of the time we don't have a lot of preparation. You know, before Katrina came, you, most of them, they had about three days of warning to prepare for that. But that's not usually how it occurs. Usually when storms, the storms of our lives have come, they just kind of hit us all at once. And it's never like we're prepared. It's never like, okay, I've got myself all ready. I've got myself all in financial shape and emotional shape and spiritual shape. And I'm ready whenever you want to send a storm. We're never sitting there with that attitude. When it hits us, it just hits us between the eyes. And it's not at a convenient time. You know, something else is interesting. Storms will occur right in the middle of God's will. Right in the middle of God's will. You can be praying, you can be seeking His face, you can be serving, you can be giving, you can be sharing, you can be doing everything, quote, correctly. And still, storms come into our lives. Even in the middle of the will of God. Do you recognize on this passage right here, we'll see a key phrase. Jesus said, let us get into the boat and go over to the other side of the lake. Let us get get in the boat. Let's go over to the other side. Jesus tells them right up front. Let me tell you, this is my will. We're going to get in this boat and we're going to head across the sea to the other side. It was his will. He had spoken it. He had told them. And yet the disciples find themselves in the middle of a storm, right in the middle of God's will. And lastly, storms come even to those who are closest to God, even when they're connected, even when you're doing everything right, when you totally are connected to Him. The most godly people encounter storms. The Bible tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It rains on everyone. Storms connect and occur for everyone. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. So how are you handling the storms of your life today? When we look at this passage right here, a lot of people will say, you know, there's, it's a legend. It's just a story. It's just a fable. And a lot of people in, in our society today say, you know, Jesus, you know, there's some good things. There's some good stories there, but let's just don't take that too literal. Let's don't get too carried away with it. As a matter of fact, they'll point at this story as an example of something that never could have happened. This is just a fable. This is a legend. But what's interesting is, uh, as a prominent Cambridge scholar pointed out about this story, about this incident, is that it is uncharacteristic of legends from that period. You see, legends uh, in that time and before that time, and really even for another 13 or 14 years afterward, 13 or 1400 years after this time, the time of Christ, usually, oh, excuse me, exclusively existed of the ones that we have would not give a lot of intricate details. They would simply give the plot and the moral of the story, and nothing that didn't fit within the story, that didn't move the story along, would be added. But if you had an eyewitness account, you would add the details. And that's how historians and scholars, secular historians, will go back now and use that as criteria to determine whether it was simply a legend or whether it was an actual account. Well, in this particular account, we see, uh, beginning in the uh, 36th verse here, we see, uh, 35th verse, it says, On that day, when evening came, on that day, the day in which Jesus had begun preaching, if we went back all the way to begin in chapter 4, he lets us know what day it is. And now we see that evening comes. That's a detail. He told them, let us cross over to the other side of the sea. And so they left the crowd and, t- 
and took him along with him since he was already in a boat. Well, why do they say that? They took him along with him even though he's already in a boat. If you'll remember, Jesus has stepped out into the boat, into a boat. He's in a smaller boat and now he simply steps over into a larger boat. It's an unnecessary detail. Also, it says, and other boats were with him. Other boats are with him at that time. Why does he say that, that other boats are out there? That doesn't help the story. That doesn't move the story along. That doesn't give us additional information that really helps us. It only makes sense if those are eyewitness accounts. If Peter is literally dictating to John Mark what has occurred, what has happened, he's remembering this and he's sharing it. And he goes on and he says, And a fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was he was in the stern. The stern. There's another detail. Sleeping on a cushion. Well, what difference does it make that he was on a cushion? What difference does it make where he was in the boat, unless this is an eyewitness account? The truth of it is, it is the truth, and it is. True, and we have to come to the place where, like C.S. Lewis, we determine either Jesus is lying, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And we'll see by the end of this uh, incident, this this story, this incident, that in fact he is Lord, and his actions proclaim that he is Lord. We can't just simply say, you know what? I believe this part of what Jesus is true said is true, and I like this part. But I don't like some other things that he said. What we want to do so desperately as humans is we want to pick out a God like we want. We want Jesus to be the God that we want. We want him to say the things that make us feel good. And we want him to do the things that make us feel good. And the rest of it, well, I'm not too sure about it. You know what that means when you do that? That means that you're making up your own idol. When you get a God who would act just like you and do the things that maybe you wish you could do and do the things that you think this is the right way to go about it, what you can determine at that fact, at that juncture, is that you, in fact, have made up your own God. Only a God who works outside of the realm of which you would even think of imagine, only a God who sometimes directly contradicts what you think should occur, that's how we can know that He's God. Because he doesn't think like us, that his ways are higher than ours, and that his thoughts are beyond what we could ever comprehend. And that's exactly who Jesus shows himself to be in this particular story, that he is the Lord of the storms, that he is God, in fact, of the storms and of our lives. And we notice after we've read that passage right there, beginning in 29, he says, excuse me, in verse 38, They come to him, and he's asleep on the cushion. They woke him up, and they said, Teacher or rabbi, don't you care that we are going to die? Don't you care that we are perishing is a literal Greek word? Don't you care that we're dying? Can you see the picture? Jesus has said, let's get in the boat, let's go over to the other side of the sea. And so they've hopped in the boat, and they're doing what Jesus has asked. And they're experienced fishermen, they're pretty much sailors, that's what fishermen were at that time. And they know, and they know it's the possibility of a storm, but Jesus has told them to go. And so they're right in the middle of His will, they're doing what He's asked. And in the middle of His request, the storm comes, and it begins to be uh, terrific. It is terrifying to them, so much so that these professional fishermen who live at sea, live on the water, come and say, Jesus, do you care? 
Do you notice what's happening? You're asleep. How can you be asleep? I wonder what the disciples were saying before that. They're probably thinking, would you go get him up? I mean, he, something needs to happen. We need to go back. We need to do something. Get him up. I'm not going to wake him up. You go wake him up. I mean, he's been sleeping. He's been preaching all day. He's been out all day. You go get him. And finally, they think, hey, we're about to die. We're all going, Jesus, get up. We're going to die. Don't you care? I mean, surely you felt the rocket in a boat and no one could sleep through that. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God was asleep? God, don't you see my situation? Can't you hear me? I've been crying out to you. Martin Luther called it the silence of God. When you cry out to Him and you hear nothing. What does that mean? Does that mean that He doesn't care? In our human logic, that might make sense. If it doesn't mean He doesn't care, does it at least mean He's not in control? He can't do anything about the current situation, our current circumstances? Why is He not responding Why is He not speaking? Why can't I feel Him and see what He's doing? At least if I could understand this. Well, we have two choices at that point. We have to determine who's God. You see, either the storm is God or He is God. And many people believe the storm is God. They believe that Through a storm, so to speak, chemicals, compounds, biological elements, all these things randomly came together and produced life. And so we have life today because of a storm, because of nature, not because of a God or because of anybody's control. It just randomly occurred. And if that, in fact, is true, then we don't have any hope. You know, great uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the great a philosopher and thinker who died last year, said that very fact as he was dying from cancer. They asked him, he said, Dr. Hitchens, do you see anything redeemable about your cancer? Is there anything you're learning? Is there anything good coming from this cancer that you're enduring that appears that it will take your life? He goes, absolutely nothing. He said, there's nothing good that comes from it. It serves no purpose. All it is doing is ripping my life away from me. I won't get to see my children married. I won't get to see my grandchildren. And I'll simply die and I'll become dust and that's the end of it. So no, there's nothing redemptive. There's nothing I'm learning. There's no positive. There's nothing about it. Life is just going to end and that's it. What a depressing philosophy of life. What a depressing way to live. That the storm, in fact, is God. Or we can believe that even in the storm, God is there and that His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that even though we can't understand it or see it, He is still ultimately in control. As we stated earlier, even in the middle of His will, even for those who are seeking Him most diligently, storms come. As Elizabeth Elliot said, she said, you know, God is God. And by His very nature, He is completely uncomprehendable. He is beyond our wildest comprehension because He is the God of the universe. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't respond like us. He allows things to come in our lives that we would never select for ourselves because He is God. He is timeless. And we, in fact, are timeless as well, but we're stuck 
in a time-constrained world. You know, I visited this week with a family who is enduring a terminal pregnancy, and we've had a couple of ladies go through our church who have gone through that experience, and we, we have another one right now, a family who uh, weren't really raised in, in church, uh, really weren't raised with the faith. And uh, Several years back, the lady went in to have her hair done, and her hairdresser asked her, he said, have, have you ever committed your life to Christ? She goes, well, I, I think I have. I'm not sure. And they began to share, and through a process of conversations, uh, this lady committed her life to Christ. But she said, you know, I never really grew, never really got involved and really studied. And uh, we moved out here not long ago, and we got the news that um, the pregnancy would be terminal and uh, that the baby would not be able to live outside the womb. And so I, we began to come, and we began to seek. And um, as we began to, to come, um, she said, one of the things that has helped me the most are when people simply greet me and say hi and just take time to get to know us. That is ministered to us. Last week I told you, and I didn't even, uh, wasn't even thinking about this particular incident, but I told you last week how much that means that God primarily works through his body. He works through his people to minister. He works through his word, through his spirit, but primarily he uses us as the body of Christ. And she gave testimony of that. Uh, and she gave testimony. She said, my husband is still seeking. I'm, I'm still, we're still searching in this process. But we know this. We know that there's hope. And I, and I believe that God is working even in the middle of this storm. Even when I can't see, even when I can't understand, I know he's drawing me. You see, that's not common conventional wisdom. We, we don't think that way. But sometimes God does things, and even though we'll never understand them on earth, we can know that he is still good and that he will supply mercy and grace and sustainability through the storm. So you can either worship or acknowledge or think or philosophize that the storm is all there is, or you can believe that there's a God in the storm who will hold us and carry us. And as Job said, though you slay me, yet will I trust you, Lord Yet will I walk you through the valley of the shadow of death, and you do not have to fear evil. For one day, here's what we know, and here's what I believe, that God redeems all pain and suffering. When it is accredited to Him. He will redeem it. The choice is, will we accept it? He will redeem it. That's why I don't want to believe that there's just this life and then it's over. If that's true, then it is, Christopher Hitchens said, it is depressing. That's it. We die, we become dust, and it doesn't matter what we did, good, bad, or ugly on this earth. It's all over. It's just done. And that's it. But if he's really a just God, you know what has to occur? One day there has to be a judgment. Redemption for those who have suffered unrighteously. Redemption for those who have gone through horrific experience. And justice for those who've chosen to blatantly deny him and go their own way. Jesus says, and we know from the Word of God, that there will be a reckoning one day. It will be a day of rewards, as we talked about at the Bema Street Sheet, or it will be a day of judgment. And we can choose to believe what we want, but it won't change the facts. It won't change the truth. Where are you today in your storm? How are you choosing 
to live? What are you choosing to believe? It's interesting in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus proclaims himself to be the true Jonah, the true Jonah. And what does that mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. If you take this passage that we just read in Mark chapter 4 and you parallel it to Jonah chapter 1, if you, lie, if you simply lay them side by side, you'll notice what the writer of Mark's gospel is doing here. He's showing the equation. And if you look at this, you'll understand how Jesus is the true Jonah that he, pro- he proclaims to be in Matthew chapter 12. First of all, we, when we look at this incident, we see what? We see that they're both on a boat. They're both at sea. They're both asleep. Someone comes and awakens. As a matter of fact, sailors, so to speak, come and awaken both of them. They both say the same thing. They both use the word perishing. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and of course the New Testament primarily is recorded in Greek, the same word is used, perishing. Jonah said, you will perish if you don't throw me overboard. The, the, the people, the sailors come and say, uh, Jonah, get up and pray your God, for we are perishing. And then they, in both of these stories, we see a miraculous intervention by God, that the storm is calm and the sea is made still. Literally, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus stands up and speaks, this is what he says. Uh, the Bible here says, silence, be still. He literally says, silence or quiet and be still. Much like we say to our children sometimes at church and other places. Be quiet and be still. And that's exactly what occurs. Same thing happened in Jonah chapter 1. You know what is also interesting? If you read this very last verse of this chapter, it says, And they were terrified and asked one another, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? In the ancient culture, it was believed that the sea not only was representative of death, but was representative of an uncontrollable power. Only the God, the supreme God, whatever they believed, could control the sea. The sea could not be controlled. There were many other facets of life that could be controlled, but the sea could only be controlled by God. So when Jesus makes this statement and when this miracle is performed, the Bible says that the disciples now are terrified. Remember when they came and found Jesus, they were scared. (laughs) They were afraid. But now they're not just scared, they're terrified. Why? Because they know they're in the presence of something that only could be God. They're terrified. Those stories are very similar, aren't they? They're almost just alike, except we say, but, but Jonah actually got tossed in the water and got swallowed by the fish. But Jesus goes on. Well, yes, if you just look at this chapter. But remember, this was written as a book. And what happens at the end of the book? The fact is that Jesus, in fact, does perish. And just like Jonah, if he had not perished, then the rest would have died. You see, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in fact, did say, I'm going to the cross. 
He went to the cross and had nails through his, driven through his hand, through his feet. He suffered and died. He perished that we might live. He died that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness, because we could never pay the storm of sin. We could never pay the penalty of sin. We could never cover those waves of iniquity. Only Christ could make them be still and make them in a manner of which they were erased and removed through His blood and through the shedding of His righteousness. That's in fact what Christ did. And that's why He's the true Jonah. The Jonah who presented life eternally for all who would believe and transfer their trust from what they could do to what Christ did upon the cross. The true Jonah. So what do I learn from this? Well, first of all, I, I know this, that I need to trust Christ because He is not only the God of the storms, He is the God of the universe. And that He can save me ultimately and eternally. Secondly, as believers of Christ, we should pray and seek the heart of God when we find ourselves in the storm. Surrender and recognize we can't control the storm. Christ, I surrender myself to You. And I praise You as the God of the universe. You are ultimately in control. And I'll be like Jonah, though You slay me, yet will I trust You. I will praise You. I will recognize You, even though I don't understand. I can't see it. You're not revealing it to me. I trust You. Number four, claim His promises that He'll never leave you nor forsake you, that He'll walk with you through these valleys. You don't have to fear evil for His rod and His staff. They will comfort you and they'll be with you. It doesn't mean you will be plucked out. The storm will be removed, but that He will walk you through the storm. And lastly, listen to His Word and seek godly counsel. You know, it's so easy when we're in the stress of life, when we're in the storms of life, to try to make sense of things in our emotional state, but often we can't. Often it just doesn't make sense when the pain, the pain of life is coming over the boat and it's starting to sink our life ship. All we want to do is go, God, don't you see me? Hey, there was nothing wrong with the disciples going and waking Jesus up. There was nothing wrong with Him asking for their help. But what they concluded was that he didn't care. But in fact, he does care. He does hear. He does see. He does weep with you. And through godly counsel and understanding Scripture, we can at least know this, that God does care. That he does see. That he does hear. That he does know. And that he is in control. Horatio Spafford, we sing his song at church frequently. It's called, It Is Well. And maybe you know that song. What you might not know is the history of that song. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago lawyer. And uh, he, had, he and his wife had lost a child early on. Uh, and they had, they had four other daughters. And those four daughters, uh, they had been raised in Chicago. And during the 1870 Great Fire uh, in Chicago, uh, that fire came along and wiped out most of uh, his real estate and his possessions. And so it was a huge setback. And during that time, he had become good friends with D.L. Moody, the great uh, Christian evangelist. And D.L. Moody was preaching over in Europe, and he invited uh, Horatio Spafford to bring his family and come over there. 
and to hear him and to help him. And so they thought it was a good time for a holiday. So they started to leave. And uh, as they got to New York, he received a telegram that told him to come back, that there was an emergency at work and they desperately needed him. And so he sent his family on and said, I'll be there in a week. Y'all go on and uh, Dr. Moody will be there to greet you and take care of you. So he went back. And unfortunately, uh, as his family was headed toward Wells, uh, they uh, encountered, they ran into another ship in the fog, and those ships collided, and uh, nearly everyone drowned uh, aboard the ship that they were on. And uh, his wife miraculously uh, was saved as she was unconscious but found herself floating uh, on a piece of wood. And uh, the other ship picked them up, and she sent back a telegraph when she got to uh, Wells that said, Saved Alone, and the other four children had drowned. Well, Horatio got that message. He immediately went to New York, got on a boat, and started traveling that way. And he told the captain of the boat, he said, Look, when we get to the place where the wreck occurred, where my children drowned, I want you to come get me. I'd like to come out to the deck, and I'd like to see where it occurred. And uh, he had been studying and reading through the book of Second Kings. And in chapter 4, he'd been reading the story of the Shunammite woman who had lost her child. And when Gehazi, the servant Elijah, came to ask her how she was doing, she said, It is well, in the King James Version. And so, in fact, uh, when he came and uh, after the captain came and said, Hey, Horatio, this is approximately where it occurred. He came out and he stood out there for about an hour. And after they had sailed through that area, he went back to his room. He penned these words. Anybody know the words? I just lost them. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Not that it is good, not that I enjoy it, not that I like it, but that, Lord, I know you are in control. You are ultimately in control. Maybe you're here today and you're in the middle of a storm. You're in the storms of life. And you need God to just speak the word, it is well. I'm in control.